stove. Years ago in Godfather movie part three, Bob the chief. Joys of COVID. Mafia Chief Don Marco Corleone meets with a cardinal. His name is Cardinal Lamberto. And reporting to the cardinal that executives from the Vatican Bank and even an archbishop from the church had been involved in a massive fraud case. After hearing the news, Cardinal Lamberto, as they're walking in this garden, in Italy, moves to a fountain and he withdraws a stove similar to the one that's in your hand. And he says, look at this stove. It's been lying in water for a very, very long time. It was a fountain of water where all the stones were gathered. <coughs> then he takes the stone and he breaks it in two in the movie. And no, I'm not going to try to break it in two. It hasn't been soaking in water. But he breaks it in two. And then he goes to Don Michael Corleone and he continues, look perfectly dry. Then he goes on to say the same thing has happened to men and women in Europe. For centuries they've been surrounded by Christianity, but Christ has not penetrated. Christ doesn't breathe within them. Is it possible to be surrounded by Christianity for thousands of years, to do it the same old, same old, week in and week out, and if we were to break you in two, it would be dry wilderness, stony hearts, instead of a heart of flesh. One of the most famous hearts of stone in scripture is of course Pharaoh. He was one that had the hardened heart. And some of you guys think that God caused his heart to be hard, but if you read verses, I mean the plagues 1 to 5, it's Pharaoh himself who causes that hardness to come. And verse 6 to 10, or rather plague 6 to 10, it's a punishment from God because he refused to let the people of Israel go, that he didn't do what God asked him to do, that he hardened his own heart, and then God didn't want to, hard, didn't want to soften his. But eventually he made the right choice, and he let the people of Israel go. Because a lot of people think that God hardens our hearts. He doesn't. God is not the God that hardens his people's hearts. But then the Israelites at times, you know, after they got delivered from Egypt, they hardened their hearts. Here they were in freedom. God has delivered them. They were delivered by the person that had the hardened heart, and they themselves became people of, of hardened hearts. Mm. And then we have a miracle of Jesus, because the disciples also suffered of hardened hearts. Jesus does this big miracle. He feeds 5,000 people. And then Mark chapter 8, we read these words. Jesus asked them, why are you talking about having no bread? Do you still not see? Remember that? You have eyes, but you do not see. You have ears, but you do not hear. You have hearts, but you do not respond. And then Jesus says, says to them, are your hearts hardened? Some Pharisees suffer from hardened hearts as well. And sometimes we give them a bad rap because it's not all the Pharisees. Because if it wasn't for the Pharisees, Judaism would have died a long time before Christ came. That's right. But nevertheless, you wouldn't want to be around the company of hardened hearts for too long because eventually you too will have a hardened heart. And there's other popular hearts of stones in modern film and modern literature. Two of them that come to mind, one is Ebenezer Scrooge and A Christmas Carol. 
And the other one is the Grinch who stole Christmas and Dr. Seuss Grinch. Who can forget the change in Grinch's heart at the end of the movie when he sees the people of Whoville singing with joy even though their gifts have been stolen. And then all of a sudden he feels a form of a heart attack coming to him. And, he, and the narrator said that his heart grew three times its normal size. And he asked the question to himself, what's happening to me? And then that famous line from the movie, I'm all toasty inside, and I feel I'm leaky. <laughs> then he turns to his dog and says, oh, I love you. Can you believe the Grinch said I love you to somebody? Or Ebenezer <coughs> Scrooge began to care about people. So there is hope for those with a hardened heart that change is a real possibility. That's right. In the Egyptian world, in the burials of mummification, they used to take out the heart organ and replace it with a stone. <laughs> it was part of the mummification process. They also had another thing they did when they took the real heart out, they would weigh it. And if it was heavier than a feather, then that person would not have a great afterlife. Because the heaviness of the heart was due to the pile up of sin that made the heart heavy. Aren't you glad we don't mummify like the Egyptians do? But nevertheless, if we don't monitor our hearts carefully, we may move into a full season of heart heartiness towards God right. and towards each other. Right. And this leads us to ask the question, what hardens a human being's heart? And the answer is, are quite a bit. And these list is, this list that I'm going to say right now is not even an exhaustive list. For example, pride will harden your heart. Yeah. Revenge right. will harden your heart. Resentment will harden your heart. Rebellion will harden your heart. Control of others will harden your heart. Perfectionism may harden your heart. That's right. Selfishness would indeed harden your heart. Guilt, shame, loneliness, betrayal, unforgiveness, disappointment, evil, trauma, COVID may even harden your heart. That's right. And above all, rejection of God will harden your heart. That's what the Pharaoh accepted, or that's what he experienced in his life. Like Pharaoh, it's easy to point our fingers at him, as Pastor Betty said, and three other fingers are looking at us, look at the man with a hardened heart. Are we sure we have hearts of flesh this morning? What would it take to change those plagued with a hardened heart? Many in modern society may simply say that we need a political change. If you're on the right, come to the left. If you're on the left, come to the right. And, and in our day, nobody wants to be the center, which is the place that we should be. I think so. Even though there are people with hard hearts in the center as well, well, they say, change your environment. Pick up and move. Go to a different city. Go to a different country. You know, uh, change your house. Change your car. Do something to change, and that will change your heart. But uh, I'm here to tell you, it doesn't work. Right. It doesn't work. It doesn't work. And the modern priests of our century, and you find it in film, and you find it in TV sitcoms as well, is you go to a therapist, and you sit down, and you explain your life to them. Not that it's bad, get me right. But when the therapist has substituted the role of the Holy Spirit, it becomes a problem. That's right. It doesn't change your heart. It might be a temporary fix, but it's not a real fix. 
See, when we, God's people, forget or neglect our unique mission, our hearts turn to stone. When we don't remember who we are and whose we are, our hearts can easily turn to stone. See, in the prophet days of Ezekiel, prophetic days of Ezekiel, God's people find themselves in exile because they found themselves there because of disobedience. They found themselves there because of adultery. They suffered from that certain terminal cancer that we will call today the hardness of the heart. They had a spirit of resignation. They were giving up on God because Yahweh wasn't enough for them, so they had to get to other gods and throw him in the mix. Thank you, God, for delivering us from that day way back there in Egypt. But right now in Canaan land, we want these other gods on board too. We want Baal for, to make the ground become fertile. We want Asherah so that we can have many children and so on and so on. They just kept on adding. They were polytheistic. They were in the same condition that Abraham was before he received that call to follow the Lord. Serving many gods. Throw them in a hat and take up, take a pick, draw something and see which God they're going to serve today. But there's two things we learn in exile. Either you're going to become holy as the Lord is holy, or you're going to become hardened in heart. That's right. And it doesn't happen overnight. It kind of just creeps up on you. Before you know it, you have no feelings. No feelings for the church. No feelings for the family of God. No feelings for people in your own family. No feelings for the community in which you live in. You just grow colder and colder and colder and harder and harder. Everything just bounces off you. Because you've lost that closeness to God. In Psalm 95, verses 7 to 10, it's also in the letter to the Hebrews. And it's a psalm that reminds the people of Israel of their experience in the wilderness. And the psalmist says, today, so that means you that are listening, the psalmist is speaking to you, today, because you're here. If you hear his voice, and do not, he says, do not harden your hearts as you did at Meribah. Remember Meribah, when you harden your hearts towards God? Who could forget Stephen's message in the book of Acts? Mm -hmm. Acts 7, 51. You stiff-necked peoples, your hearts and your ears are still uncircumcised. You are just like your ancestors. You always resist the Holy Spirit. How many times have we been in service to the Holy Spirit and we've been more concerned about our watch? We resist Him, we resist Him, we resist Him. And before though, when the Holy Spirit would, I don't feel Him anymore. Because your hearts have become hard, like hearts of stone. The heart of stone is a rebellious heart. It was the prophet Jeremiah who said, the heart of human is deceitful above all. Mm. And he watched the whole generation of people turn away from God. And some of them, with their worship of the other gods, even began sacrificing their children. That's how deluded they became in their understanding of God. Because they accepted the other gods alongside the one true God. Moses, while well, he was giving his farewell speech in Deuteronomy, the whole of Deuteronomy is Moses' farewell speech. One last talk to the people of Israel before he, does, he dies and doesn't get to cross to the other side with them. He said there's a day coming where their hearts need to be circumcised. Even Moses, as he's giving his farewell speech, he says God has done so much for these people, but they don't get it. 
They don't get it. And he even tells them in his farewell speech near the end of it, they're going to turn away from God. They're going to be chasing the other gods. Like, can you imagine how Moses must have felt when he gave that message to the people of Israel? The people he loved, the people he led, the people he, he seen many people die over the years in their travels and in their wars until they get to that point. And he said, oh, but I can see the future. You say, yes, Lord, yes, today. But I know what tomorrow holds. I know how much it's going to take for you just to make a, a turnaround and turn away from God instead of keep running towards God. It's not going to take much. It's not going to take much. And it happened. God delivered Israel from Pharaoh, and they became like him, like the unclean nations that surrounded them. They were supposed to be different. They were supposed to be holy. They were supposed to be righteous. They were supposed to be devoted. And instead, they got absorbed into the culture of the surrounding nations. Hello, the church hasn't done any better. That's right. The church hasn't done any better. And you know what was another problem with the people of Israel, and it's our problem today too? They self-diagnosed their own faithfulness to God. God seen infidelity. God seen them prostituting after other gods. And they said, well, we're faithful. We worship in the temple. We listen to the preacher in the synagogue. We do this and we do that. And God says, it's not for you to diagnose yourself. I am the one who examines you. It'd be a dangerous territory when you start to compare your walk with somebody else's walk, or your walk with the church's walk, or your walk with whatever's going on in the church, generally speaking. Mm. It's God that we have come to worship. It's God that has come and called us to a new life and to a new purpose. Amen. They thought they were alive, but God says he heard dead. In chapter 37, it makes it clear that dead dry bones illustration that follows our passage for today. They were unresponsive. That's what a cold heart is. It never responds. It just sits and sits and sits and week by week and week by week it gets harder, 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 harder to respond to God himself. You see the heart in the Hebrew culture was, a, was known as a place that sustains life. It was the motivating center of life. From the heart flew all things flow, right? It was called the Levah or the Lamb, the inner man, the mind, the will, the conscience, the moral character, the seed of appetites, emotion, desires, and courage. It knew both joy, it knew both, and pain. Everything flew, flowed from the heart. It's where you make your choices, motive. It's from the heart, right? And they're motivated by your desires. James makes it clear in his letter, right? But the choices we make in, in life come from the desires of our hearts. Amen. And Jesus also talks about out of your heart shall flow all this stuff, right? David, we read that he had it in his heart to build a temple for God. It was a desire. It came to birth. He didn't get a chance to build it because of the bloodshed. But his son did get a chance to build a temple. And then Proverbs 4.23 that we all know. Well, guard your heart because from it flows your whole life. Right. It's there for a reason. The Apostle Paul mentions it, not exactly paraphrasing, but in certain places in his letters, guard your heart. That's right. How well are we doing, church? How easily are we absorbed <coughs> into the culture of today? Even church culture of today, which does not really mean that it's a blessing from God. It's just something we assume is a blessing from God. 
The heart is what you use to discern between truth and error. That's right. The heart of Israel become a heart of stone doomed to making bad choices in life. There are consequences for our choices. There are consequences when you keep on resisting God, resisting God, resisting God, instead of welcoming God and opening your life to God. The consequences of their choices gradually led them to a heart of stone, and they didn't even see it coming. Do you? How do you respond to things? How do you respond to appeals? How do you respond to missions? How do you respond to things in general? Is it with an open, warm heart? So we're in Ezekiel. We'll be gathered that by now. <laughs> and he's in exile. Some people say he maybe was 30 years old. He would have been ordained a priest in Jerusalem. But he's still part of the priestly family. And he begins to bring these words of ancient prophecy that we still have in, to our day. Speaking in 6th century BC, he was a man with out-of-this-world visions. They were psychedelic visionary for anybody that's read the book of Ezekiel. The book of Ezekiel is also R-rated. has a restricted grade on it because of its content. For those that need to read it, and maybe more interest now, because I said it has an R-rating. It's something what happens. But anyway, it can be difficult to digest at times. Wheels within wheels. Is it trying to make sense of what's going on in there? And it's one of the, the literatures of, of the prophetic books that is really blaming the victim literature until it gets to the end. He just lays it on the Israelites. You, you, you. Look what you've done. Until he gets to where we are today. Maybe he's going back to chapter 34. Then he begins to bring some hope into the message. He begins to give a hopeful promise of restoration. He's moving from reprimand to hopeful promise. That's one of my Old Testament teachers. It's the theme of judgment and mercy. And I like what James says. Mercy triumphs over judgment, my friends. Amen. For all those stuck on judgment and judgment and judgment. No, James says it. And the prophet is making it clear. Mercy triumphs over judgment. See, the heart of flesh is a people of mercy. The heart of stone is a people of constant judgment upon everyone else. So his prophetic message turns from judgment to hope, from reproach to promise. Now that God's punishment has been received, Ezekiel turns to the future and to the ways that God will act to revive and restore God's people. And it's not because of them. Did you hear Pastor Sheila? Yeah. For my name's sake. Right. For my reputation, for my holiness, what you cost other nations around to say of me, Israel, I don't care about you at this moment. I care what you've done to my name. What a message for contemporary church today, people. Mm. The things that have been said and done in the name of Jesus. Help us, Lord. And, and what we read in the news was happening in the body of Christ. And all the other nations and all the unbelievers say, say, I told you that was phony. That wasn't real. Look at that. We're all in it for the money. What matters is Yahweh's reputation. Is that why you're here today? Amen. Are you here for Yahweh? Are you here for God? See, Ezekiel, along with the other prophets of the exile, gave reasons why judgment was necessary. We heard unclean lives. 
And the language God uses is like a woman's menstrual period. So we'd have to be more descriptive than that, do we? Like Isaiah would say, like, filthy rags. Right? God's language, not Michael Zeta's language, God's language, okay? I told you it has an R rating for some. They profane the name of Yahweh. They drag it through the mud. Can you imagine what we're doing with all our social media, how we're dragging God's name through the mud, and people are laughing and ridiculing him, and laughing because we're not living that heart of flesh life, that spirit-filled life? The neighbors are starting to ridicule, and the Israelites were corrupt, much like the church was corrupt in that scene from the Godfather, part three. As a result of their exile, they could no longer enjoy his presence because there was no temple in that walk. Where are they going to worship God? How are they going to praise God? For them, it had to be in Jerusalem. It had to be at the temple. That was the place that they thought they could worship God or in the tabernacle before the temple was built. But Ezekiel's got to experience something really, really great. Even though by the rivers of Babylon, they wept. They wept because they're missing home. Now that they've been exiled, now they want to go home, just like George Bailey in A Wonderful Life, right? Picking on Bedford Falls all through the movie until at the end of the movie when he gets to go home. Whoa, home is not a bad place to be. How about the prodigal son? Want to get out of Wake? Well, I want to leave home. I want to go somewhere else. But at the end, home was a good place that the father restored him. Was it not? Maybe home's not that bad after all. Here's Ezekiel. He had a beautiful resume. He was looking forward to a hopeful ministry in Jerusalem, ministry in the temple that Solomon built. Can you imagine that? And now he's stuck with organizing impromptu gatherings by the river. Shall we gather at the river? But more in a blue-style tone. Because they know it's the enemy that says, sing us some songs of Zion, because they're making fun of them. And these guys can't even get the words out. And there they are by the rivers of Babylon, weeping, displaced, and finding it hard to sing the songs of Yahweh in a strange land. Ezekiel went to the people with bitterness in his heart, and he still went and felt the God, hand of God upon him. Right now, he begins, he sat where they sat. He still had compassion for these disobedient hearts of stones. Ezekiel, the priest who turned to be a prophet, sat where they sat. He mourned where they mourned. He prayed where they prayed. He sang with them, even if it had a blues melody to it. He began to understand the people, but he also had a vision from God that things are going to be different and God's about to do a new thing. Amen, amen. See, the people of the ruling nations began to think that their God is stronger than Yahweh. Because they have the belief that might is right. Mm. Isn't that what we see evolving in a world full of wars today? The one who thinks that might is right thinks they can conquest everybody. It doesn't work that way. At the beginning of Ezekiel, Ezekiel has that vision. And he's taken in the spirit and he's dumped on the riverside of Babylon. And on that riverbank... He sees the kebab of God, the glory of God. And he's like, how could it be that the glory of God is in Babylon? Isn't it supposed to be in Jerusalem? And finally there's a light bulb that goes out in the heart of Ezekiel. And he begins to know that 
God's glory is not restricted to a building. God is mobile, my friends. Amen. Wherever you are, God will be with you. God is mobile. This revolutionized the thought of Ezekiel, revolutionized the thought of Israel too, because we know post-exilic that they finally began to be monotheistic. They finally began to worship the one true God, that the Lord, our God, is one, and the Lord is God. They finally began to put that in place even to this day. That's why they're not rebuilding the temple. According to some Jews, some Jews are still waiting to rebuild the temple. But a majority know because they understand that they can pray to God anywhere, anytime. Everywhere. So God speaks to Ezekiel, and he gets this word that he we have been going on. He's going to do that new thing, and again, not for the sake of the people, but for the vindication of his name. Because God will not be mocked. That's right. He will not be mocked. And he promises them, I'm going to bring you to the promised land that came to be. He's going to say, I put a new heart in you. I'm going to put a new spirit in you. I'm going to cleanse you. And those things that have taken place, not only for Israel, but the promise has been fulfilled in the person we call Lord, Jesus Christ. The one who had a heart of obedience. The one who had a heart of purity. The one who had a heart of holiness. The one who listened to God, who saw what God saw, and it did what God called him to do. He wants us to have this warm, responsive heart. So the question that needs to be asked is, how warm and responsive is your heart to the things of God? Or are you one that's been coming week in and week in and you just resisted, you resisted, you resisted, you resisted, instead of moving into the things that he has for you? See, what the, what, what, what's happening here is that you can do nothing to change yourself. That's right. You know, when we said do more good, you know, do more acts of, of mercy or acts of compassion, five are good things to do, but that doesn't change your heart. That's right. You know, and God doesn't come to repair your heart. God comes to give you a new heart Amen. and put his spirit within us so that we can live out outwardly the will of God in our everyday world so that the eyes of the world are really looking upon us, my friend. But we try to wiggle our way from that responsibility. Well, that's not possible. That's only for something in the future. Well, how are we going to convert people when this world comes to an end and the new heavens and the new earth take place? It's for this time, not for the sweet by and by. Second Corinthians chapter 2 says, speaks of the letter from Christ written with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of the human hearts. See, Ezekiel's hope is not in the faithfulness of the people. Ezekiel's hope is in the faithfulness of God. Amen. Self-diagnosed Christianity that says, I'm okay and they're not going to make you a heart of stone, not a heart of flesh. He is the faithful one. He is the one we look to. He is the one we worship. He is the one that we adore. He is the one we bow to, that we cast our crowns to him. He is the one we worship. Not us. Church, do you believe that this radical change is possible? Yes. Do you yes. believe it? Amen. Ian Dugas says the following. The contemporary life change programs, the question is invariably answered in the affirmative. 
This is from human possibility theory. Because of the infinite power of the human spirit, plain dust in enlightenment period, because of the infinite power of the human spirit, you can kick that habit. You can lose those pounds. You can win, friends. You can influence people. At least that's what the brochures tell us. Until you soak money and money and money and find out they're all empty words. That's right. Searching in vain. Sure, they help some people. So he goes on to say, sure, we assure people God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. And that's not bad in itself. But as if that were the most natural and self-evident truth in the world. In consequence, it's not surprising to find out many people approach Christianity as if they're interviewing God for a job. Checking out whether as a deity is up to the task of being Lord of their life. They are seeking to determine whether Christianity will work for them. I'll try it out. Give God a list of questions to see if he's real or not. God will be only too pleased to welcome them should they decide in his favor. That doesn't work, my friends. When we treat God as something to be tried. Mm -hmm. Wasn't that Israel's problem? Yes. 3,000 years of history with God Almighty. And now over 5,000 years of history with God. As if God is something to be tried. And see if it works out for me. Because that's the best that I can do. Oh. Ezekiel saying, God says, I will clean them. I will give them a new heart. I will put my spirit in them. And I will lead them and empower them and equip them to be obedient to my will. I, the Lord Almighty, who called you out of Egypt and delivered you and carried you on eagles, wings, I will do it. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Lord. See, the problem we have in our day is we live in this imminent world. That's everything under the sun and the ecclesial <coughs> frame of thinking and and, and we're trying to do everything ourselves, and we're expending energy and expending energy and expending energy, and we gotta do this and we gotta do that, and we get all burned out at the end of the day because we don't wait for the transcendent God who stands beyond us that needs to step into this imminent frame and change us and restore us. Amen. You follow me? Amen. We need help from beyond where we're living so the God of glory and might and created all things can come and rescue us. Amen. That's what chapter 37 is all about. A bunch of dry bones, a bunch of ashes there. And Ezekiel gets this vision. And then the Spirit of God begins to breathe and all those bones come back together again and become life. It's a reflection of Genesis chapter 2 when he created Adam and from dust he created and then he, he blew his rock, his spirit into him and Adam came to life. Not death. That's what the heart of flesh is. It's life. Amen. Not death. A new heart loves God. That's right. A new heart loves others. A new heart loves their enemies. Hello? Because without love, if you don't love your enemies, it's, it's easy to get a cold heart of stone. But Christ has called us to love even our enemies. You don't have to agree with your enemies, but you need to love them. And if you find them in a ditch somewhere, pick them up and restore them with God's help. You know, my friends, it's easy to drift. It's easy to drift. One week, two weeks, before you know it, it's three months, before you know it, it's six months, before you know it, it's a year, two years. 
And God's been speaking with you, and, and all you've been doing is resisting him. Resisting, pushing him away. Self-diagnosing yourself. I'm okay, you're okay, we're all okay. And then before you know it, you've developed and you formed a heart of stone instead of a heart of flesh. A heart of resistance instead of a heart of response. And you get involved with all the arguments that go on in the church, and you know that I like theology, you know, steal that, but I know that those things are not going to save me. That's right. Those things are not going to change my heart. The only thing that changed my heart is to say, God, I can't do it, but yes, you can. Yes, you can. Perhaps this season of life, we need to be reminded that it's not about us. It's not about us. It's about God. And what God has chosen to do for us, he wants to cleanse us from all impurities. He wants us to experience that new heart. He wants to put his spirit within us. And he knows real well that it's easy for humanity to drift, even those that are his people, mm-hmm. to slowly drift away That's right. from That's the right. purposes of God. You know that every human effort at spiritual regeneration will fail? Hello? And if you think by doing good, you're doing good, well, then Jesus says that our righteousness needs to exceed those of the Pharisees? And what were the Pharisees known for? Doing good. So if we only want to do good like the Pharisees and our righteousness doesn't exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees, then we haven't experienced the new heart and new spirit that God has offered to us. Remember he's doing this for his sake, for his name's sake. So as the worship team comes, the promise of Ezekiel is this to the people of Israel. It's still a promise to us to put in effect that God will do what he says he will do. Even if they have hardened hearts, God has promised that he will give them a heart of flesh. Now, the response is, do you accept his offer or not? So, you know, we have these stones in our hands. And I reversed the order of the song today because I think this song fits better with the closing. It's an old chorus, but I think it speaks of truth. It has some words from Isaiah. Change my heart, O God. Another thing in this passage is that it's not only about individual renewal, it's about a national renewal. He's right. going to bring the whole people of Israel and put in their hearts a new heart and put his spirit within them, and he's going to bring them back to land. But it's also an individual where he's going to help us and empower us to lead, live and to lead a holy life. So as we sing this song, maybe you need to contemplate a bit. Maybe someone that has been slowly drifting away, away and away from the Lord, and you feel your heart has become harder instead of softer to the things of God. Wait to your moment, and then come and drop your stone at the foot of the cross to the one who is perfect, who leads us. Let's stand.